Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, how you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I hope you're doing okay wherever you happen to be. I appreciate you tuning in. Today on the program, my guest is Tiffany Clark Harrison, author of the debut novel, Blue Hour. And I think that's a place where the main character finally comes to Like she just starts in this place of, like I was saying, here's this other mistake that I've, quote unquote, I've made that I'm not able to carry to term. And then also a bit of relief because if I did, there's this outside world. And also if I did, I'm going to F this child up because I'm a mess. Okay, that was Tiffany Clark Harrison. Her debut novel, Blue Hour, published just yesterday on Soft Skull Press. Blue Hour is a novel written in a fragmentary style. It is narrated by a biracial woman, a black Japanese woman who is a photographer, a teacher, a wife to her husband who is Jewish and white. The narrator is traumatized, having suffered terrible losses in her youth, and she is, over the course of the book, wrestling with the prospect of motherhood, struggling with fertility and miscarriages, and nursing a deep ambivalence about both her worthiness as a mother and whether or not motherhood is a decent moral choice, whether bringing new life into a world as broken as ours is, is a responsible thing to do, especially when the child is going to be born in a brown body. I had a great time meeting Tiffany Clark Harrison and talking with her about these central concerns of her fine debut novel. That conversation is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of Community Board, the new novel by Tara Conklin. We've all seen those ridiculous posts on neighborhood message boards. These posts 
bring Darcy Clipper great comfort. Darcy is in self-imposed solitude after her husband leaves her for his skydiving instructor, and she relies on her neighbor's posts for connection and company. Community Board is the latest novel from Tara Conklin, the New York Times bestselling author of The Last Romantics, which was the inaugural Read with Jenna pick. Community Board is a wise and big-hearted novel, and also a very funny novel, about unplanned isolation and newly forged community, both online and IRL. That's Community Board, available now from Mariner Books. This episode is also brought to you by Melville House, publisher of the novel Flux by Jinu Chong, a blazingly original debut and a mind-bending and stylish neo-noir about a young man whose reality unravels when he begins to suspect that the tech startup he works for has inadvertently discovered time travel and is using it to cover up a string of violent crimes. This is a haunting and sometimes shocking exploration of the cyclical nature of grief, of moving past trauma, and of the pervasive nature of whiteness within the development of Asian identity in America. That's Flux by Jinu Chong, available from Melville House. The Other People podcast is offered freely. There is no paywall for this podcast. Everything is available to listeners for free, more than 800 episodes and counting. This is by design. Nobody likes paywalls, but I am counting on regular listeners, people who really love this show, people who feel like they get something from it, they learn something from it, or people who just love literary culture and want to help perpetuate it. I'm counting on these people, these kinds of people, to support the show over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month. I've tried to make it easy. I know that there are a million subscriptions out there and things that are vying for your attention and your dollars and so on and so forth. So I've tried to make it a no-brainer, $1 a month, $1 in the hat every month to help keep this show going. It is a sliding scale, so it's whatever you can afford, $1, 3 5 10 20 And as you move up the scale, you get merch. So check that out. Support the show over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to get another people t-shirt, they're soft, they fit well, they wash well, they're good t-shirts, go get a t-shirt at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Scroll down, look for the t-shirt. You can't miss it. I do a once-a-week email newsletter. It's free. Sign up for that at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's essentially just a, an enumerated list of things that I've been reading and finding interesting, just links to things that I've been reading. And either it's funny or it's compelling or both. So sign up for that if that sounds good. I also let you know about the latest episodes of the podcast. If you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate this show wherever you listen to this show. Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is, give the show a rating. If it's possible to write a quick review, please do that. It really does help. It helps new listeners find the show in the uh, algorithm. You can watch the Other People podcast on the Other People YouTube channel. Go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, 
And when you find the Other People YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. You can watch clips, video clips of my conversations on this program on the Other People social media feeds, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at OtherPPL. If you have something to say to me, you can email the show. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Finally, I have a novel out. My latest novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. It's a work of autofiction. So if you want to explore my psyche, you can read my novel. Again, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So my guest, once again, is Tiffany Clark Harrison. Her debut novel is called Blue Hour, and it is available now from Soft Skull Press. Tiffany is based in North Carolina, where she works as a teacher, a writing coach, and as an author. We had a great conversation, and I'm excited to share it with you right now. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is my conversation with Tiffany Clark Harrison, and her debut novel, One More Time, is called Blue Hour. There's a point, I think it happens right before sunrise and right before sunset, no, or right after sunset. And it's where there seems to be like this blue light across everything. And if I have those times of day wrong photographer photographers please don't come for me but it's where light is completely distilled i think and there's just like this lovely blue light across everything and it made me think of it's just so serene like i even googled photographs that were taken during what's called blue hour and it's just a very calm and serene and peaceful place. And that is something that this main character, she's just never really felt that. And for her to have that in that moment that she did and notice that and have Noah, her photography student, notice that, um, it was just very special for her. So, yeah. This is a narrator who is in search of some serenity mm-hmm. and kind of desperate for peace. Yes. Like a peace, like an inner peace and an outer peace. And that's hard to come by in this world. Yeah. You know, she's had some familial trauma uh, before she and her husband began experiencing uh, infertility and miscarriage that she is not addressed or she's addressed in her own way that was not the most not the most conducive to healing more it was mostly destruct a destructive way that she dealt with the trauma and then um now after her so in blue hour the photographer i can't remember if i mentioned that she's nameless but the photographer the main character um she one of her photography students is shot by the police. The student was unarmed and she tells her husband, if 
this next round of IVF does not work. I don't want to keep trying. And her husband desperately still wants to try and have a child with her. And for a lot of reasons for her, she, one, doesn't want to bring a black body into this world. Uh, My main character is black Japanese. Her husband is white Jewish. She's afraid of just what this world would do to the child. And also her role in her family, uh, she was the middle child in her family. She was, she's someone who always feels like she's messing up. She always feels like I'm not going to get this right. And I'm going to F this up in some way. And so she has this ambivalence about motherhood in part because of, I don't want to bring a black child into this world. And also because, oh my goodness, what if I, what if I ruin this child? We already have this world and then there's me. I don't want to mess this up. And then, you know, there's a scene early on where she has a miscarriage and she's in the bathroom and sack comes out of her and she kicks it. And I've gotten a lot of feedback about that. Like, holy, what? And like, how could she? Because it seems like the thing to do would be to show reverence somehow and cradle it or like do something that gentler might happen. And the fact that she kicks it it was it it was a here's another mistake i've made i want to be as far from this mistake as possible that bought also battling with the just the deep sadness of what just happened to her and having those two kind of competing forces together yeah this is just a character who she's been through it so <laughs> Totally, totally. I mean, you mentioned this previous trauma. She has lost most of her family mm-hmm. in a car accident. Yeah. Parents, younger sister, and feels a level of responsibility for it. Mm-hmm. She was, you know, they were visiting her prior to the accident and uh, on not the best of terms. Correct. <laughs> and then she responds to that massive trauma and loss as you mentioned earlier, and not the most constructive or helpful of ways when it comes to healing. There's a lot of self-medication, a lot of kind of reckless behavior. Mm -hmm. Totally understandable and human. I mean, my God, for somebody to experience something like that. And then, you know, in the kind of present day of the novel, as she's struggling with infertility and miscarriage, I relate a lot to... The reality of the grief of it, uh, as I was telling you before we came on the air, like I, my wife and I went through five miscarriages. Yeah, uh, I remember distinctly one of them, at least one of them happening in the bathroom, like uh, not entirely dissimilar to the one that you write about. And I think wow. this is a familiar experience for a lot of women, a lot of couples. And the thing that I 
loved about the book is the fact that it honors the grief of that kind of loss because it is a weird kind of loss. It's like, is it a person? Right. Is it a full person yet? Or are you allowed to grieve? <laughs> like, is it merited to grieve a child that you've never really met? But that, you know. Yeah. And yet, if you go through it, I, I would, you know, I think some people are more cavalier about it than others. But I, most people, it's a deep loss, especially women. But mm -hmm. I think also fathers. Like, I remember feeling genuinely grieved by these losses. And I think that the other thing about the way that you portray this narrator and her husband as they try to conceive is that with each loss, the tension and the stress of pregnancy escalates. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that until we started losing all these pregnancies. And it was like every time we would get pregnant, it would be this like joy coupled with this terror. Right. <laughs> like you almost wanted to, I just wanted to like wrap my wife in bubble wrap, you yeah. know, like just don't move, like just don't, don't be stressed out, don't, you know, eat all the right things, just yep. sit there <laughs> and let this thing, uh, you know, grow. And so I don't know, you, you portray that in a way that really hit home and felt both lived in and human and real. Thank you. I, I just, I started this, uh, I started Blue Hour 2014 or 2015. And at the time, they weren't even just friends, just several people like blogging was still kind of big. And women were talking kind of still a little bit hush hush about miscarriage and how there's still a great deal of shame behind it. And I did something wrong. And like I said, my character's like, get this other mistake away from me. Not the fetus as a mistake, but the fact that she couldn't, her body wouldn't carry it to term. She is owning as her mistake, as if it was deliberate. And sometimes, you know, it's seen as, oh, well, I wonder why that's happening. What are they doing? What are they, whatever. And it's like, I, I didn't do it. Guys, <laughs> it's not me trying to do this thing. And anyway, there was just a great deal of shame around it. A great deal of, I, I don't know, like getting pregnant again. Should I be happy? Should I be super cautious? Am I allowed? But then also I should still be grieving maybe because I lost this thing and I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to feel. And then, you know, people talk about going to their, um, women talk about going to their appointments and being excited for their appointments. I get to see the baby today or, you know, whatever it is. And instead of that being a joyous occasion, it's one filled with, Oh my God, what happens if they don't find the heartbeat? Right. Yeah, totally. And then like, yeah, I remember one miscarriage at the OBGYN with my wife and just, you know, very upset, just a huge bummer. And then having to walk back out through the lobby of the doctor's office and there's all these like happy pregnant women yep. in the lobby and you're just like, ah, just such a, such a heartbreak. Yeah. And maybe not something that people talk about a lot. And I think, you know, another thing that you portray very well through this character and in this novel is the way that women can internalize miscarriage as failure, maybe more so than men, you know, mm -hmm. it's their bodies and it's maybe like more 
it's more personal or mm-hmm. something, if that's a way to put it. And I think it's kind of natural, but it's not, it doesn't, you know, it's not obviously anybody's fault really. Right. right. Unless I guess if you're, if you're, you know, drinking to excess or something during right. pregnancy, then maybe, yeah. maybe it would be. But I think for most people who are trying to conceive and take care of themselves, you know, it's, it's not a personal failing. Yeah. It's a, there's a part where I think it's early on when she's meeting with her therapist and she says, I can't remember if I use the word betrayal or not, but why won't my body have a baby? Why doesn't my body want to have a baby? And this idea that our bodies are supposed to do certain things. And if mine is not doing a thing it's supposed to do, and it's not happening to these other women who are sitting here in the lobby of the OBGYN, it must be something that I am doing. Why do they get to be happy? Why do they get to carry a term? Why do they get to, you know, fill in the blank with whatever it is? I have multiple sclerosis. I was diagnosed in 2017. I was uh, 37 and I lost my vision went sideways. And then when it finally righted itself, a couple days later, I was seeing double and I couldn't walk and a lot of other things. And you feel like your body has betrayed you. And it's, you start not even, I don't know if it's always consciously, but looking for ways, how, how is it that I deserve this? There must be something I did to deserve this. And the main character, why? She, well, she doesn't say that directly. There is a conversation that she has with her sister in which she says something like, oh, I got rid of one baby. So you must think like, this is my punishment. I can't have that. I can't have another one because the main character did have an abortion early on. Right. Yeah. And so your mind just starts going in all these ways, the way the brain does like, oh, I'm, this is some kind of punishment. I must have done something to cause this. And so she just, she really goes in on herself and she starts seeing herself beginning to not cope in the same exact way she did when her family died, but mirroring some of those same patterns and knowing that that's not a place she wants to get back to again. That wasn't, that's not an existence that she wants for herself, for her husband, for them as a family. And yeah, she just, she finally allows herself to fall apart. And I think that's something a lot of women, but men too, (laughs) we don't allow ourselves to fall apart And a lot of the time, that's exactly what the body needs and what the person needs to heal. It's just, let's have our time to fall apart. So, Yeah. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, 
based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, I want to, for the benefit of listeners, because and I have to take advantage of this since you did it, which almost no authors do, but on your website, you wrote these lovely little sketches yeah. of, of the main character and her husband, Asher. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read first the main character. Okay. You describe her as black, Haitian, and Japanese. Yeah. Married, married her husband, Asher, after a few short months at the courthouse wearing a white long sleeve mini dress and Doc Martens. A photographer with a penchant for the odd and overlooked teaches photography classes to youth in an old food truck refurbished into a mobile darkroom. Likes pancakes with the edges slightly burnt and crispy. Likes dark humor, vintage jewelry, boxes, noise. Hiccups profusely when she's nervous. So this begs the question, are you drawn, or do you hiccup profusely when you're nervous? I do I'm just not. Curious. I have no idea where that came from, but. It's, a, it's adorable though. I love this about her. <laughs> I have no idea where that came from, but she's such a kind of hard person. And I wanted to give her something that like, she doesn't almost doesn't even seem like she would be someone who gets nervous. And not only does she get nervous, like she just can't stop hiccuping. And so I wanted this like softer, this softer piece to her that, and I don't know, my brain offered me that. And I just, I loved it. And her husband loves it. So yeah, felt real to me. I loved it. And her husband, Asher, you describe as married to main character, white Jewish, tie designer who owns a men's boutique in Brooklyn. Married main character in a floral print burgundy suit. Can only sew to one of Chopin's nocturnes. Deeply romantic. Collects picture frames abandoned on the sidewalk. Drives a Triumph motorcycle. Former line cook. Learned to sew in Hamburg. Likes reading the classics. Bourbon in his pancake syrup. Cooking authentic international dishes. Voice goes up an octave when he's nervous. He hates it. Okay, so first of all, he sounds kind of dreamy. Look at this guy. He can he can cook, he can sew. You know, he's, <laughs> he's into Chopin and reading the classics. I'm wondering as a creative exercise, yeah. is are these bios something that you did prior to drafting the book or in the midst of drafting the book as you were trying to kind of draw it into focus? No, I actually did that like late, like September of last year, a friend of mine who was a writer and editor, she does uh, picture books. 
And she said, in the children's world, we often talk, or picture book world, we often talk about creating a world for people to get into before they even, you know, pick up the book. And so that's why I went and create, I think that's the page you're reading from with like, this is what they're watching right now. And like, they're doing like what's hanging on their, the walls of their apartment and stuff like that. And it was really fun to do just going into kind of this launch season because I know all this stuff. I've pieced this stuff together for the past six to eight years, but to sit down and be like, okay, if they just had like a quick, like a quick few lines about who they were, what, what would that look like? And yeah, so it was just fun to pull that together. And some of it's from, um, when I wrote the line cook thing, I said, people are going to say, oh, I wonder if she made that change because she watched the bear or something. <laughs> and like, no, uh, behind the scenes restaurant stuff is trendy or whatever, but he's been a line cook since former line cook since like 2017. So, but yeah, it was just a really fun thing to do for the website and just also to, to kind of narrow in on who these people were. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's great for people who are going to be interviewing you. It gives you, <laughs> it gives them fodder. And I, I loved it too. Like it's fun to sort of have an author list like, well, this, these are the shows they're streaming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is what the art on their walls looks like. You know, that's just like a fun creative exercise. And it's an, it is a nice way for, I think, prospective readers or people who have read sure. to get to know these people better and to have a sense of things. And I want to talk about photography a bit more with respect to the narrator mm -hmm. and this job that she has as a photography instructor working out of, what is it, like a converted bread truck or something? Like a food like, truck that she, right. yeah, that she converted. Into a dark room. Yeah. And one of her students, Noah Pierce, I mm -hmm. believe is the name, mm -hmm. is shot, shot by police, unarmed, as you said earlier. Mm -hmm. And you know, very heartbreaking, all too relatable. I mean, we are talking the day after another school shooting right. in America, in Nashville. And I don't know if you're on social media, but I follow uh, several of the Uvalde parents on yeah. Twitter. And there is this woman who absolutely breaks my heart every day. And yet I cannot look away. And to watch them be re-traumatized and to have to kind of relive and she's talking about how she's 30 years old. She won't send her son to school because it's mm. not safe. Right. And she won't have, and she's like, I'm not having any more children because this world is so cruel mm -hmm. and broken. And you're just like, if you're anything like me, you're like, I'm speechless. I have nothing to offer. Like, yeah. what do you say to someone? I mean, she's, she's got every right to feel that way. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, of course. And, and yet, why do I, why am I, you know, you're rooting so hard for her and for anyone like her to find some semblance of peace and to continue in life in a productive way and to find happiness, you know, and yeah. I don't know. It's like, I understand too, as a parent, like this strange and terrible decision that all parents have to sort of wrestle with. Like, what kind of world are we bringing our kids into? Mm -hmm. Is there going to be a world that's functional? and habitable for them to live in. And then 
you add to that the question of bringing a brown body into the world Mm -hmm. and all that that entails, you know, and it sucks that that's a thing, right? Yeah. I remember when the verdict came out for the police officers in the, um, I'm sorry, I know his name. We all know his name, George Floyd case. And I remember I have a son. My son is 13 and my daughter is 15, almost 16. And my son likes to wear hoodies. It was summertime, I believe, um, or it was still hot in North Carolina. And he likes to wear hoodies. And at the time we were still in lockdown, I believe, or like mostly in lockdown. And just to get out of the house, he would just go like walk up the street. And my husband and I sat them both down and we said, you all know about George Floyd and the verdict came out today. And um, I don't know, there are going to be some people who are upset and, you know, I, we said foster, that's my son. If you go outside, we just want you to stay close to the house today. Like we live in a safe neighborhood, but I also, not that racism isn't everywhere. I'm also very aware that we live in the South and we were just like, I just want to feel okay. So just don't walk. I don't want you walking around today. And he was like, but why? Well, you know, and explain. And then he's just, I mean, at the time he must've been like 11, maybe 12. And he just didn't get it. And to have to explain well, because, you know, somebody might see you and people are upset about this and that and whatever. And he's just like, I'm just walking to the street, though, up the street. Yeah. Right. You're just, I know. People are just holding phones in their backyard. People are just walking right. down the street. And to look at your child's face, Actually, both ways to look at your child's face and see that they don't get it. And you just have to pull like the parenting thing of, look, just do what I said. <laughs> just right. Just do what I said. <laughs> and then right. also to look at your other child's face who does get it. Neither of those things feel good. The fact that they get it and the fact that they don't. Neither of them feel good. There's a part in Blue Hour where she talks about being on the subway and seeing kids going to school and what their parents must have black and brown kids going to school and what their parents must be feeling when they get them dressed for the new school year. Like I I think she says essentially just try and be invisible as if that's a possibility as if saying yes, sir, no ma'am, or like, hands up or like having your hands like for people to see them, whatever it is, as if it makes a difference. And we're seeing that it doesn't really make a difference. And parents knowing that I was working on this. I ha- I have my uh, master's in fine arts and I started this book, like I said, in 2015, 16. And I took draft three, four of this book 
through an MFA program. And I remember there were a couple of people, not many, a couple who said they didn't understand why anyone would decide not to have children because of what happened to Noah in the book being shot. That was a scary, I I truly didn't know what to say. Who were these people? (laughs) (laughs) Um, There were two people who said that I remember. And I was in your, in your, in your MFA program. Yeah. Yeah. Students. Oh, faculty all got it. My professors were amazing. But there were two students who were like, yeah, I don't understand why someone would make that decision. And I was just kind of like, I don't understand why you don't understand <laughs> why someone would make that decision. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's a... Being a parent has a lot of wonderful things that come with it. And it also has, like, I'm in the teenage years with both of them and 13-year-old boys. It's not a great time. <laughs> <laughs> my son my son is like, uh, my son is seven. Yeah. Going on eight. So I've got a little time. But yeah. I'm... My son's wonderful. But it's just, you know, we're just in the yeah. years right now. And then also just, you know, adding on that extra that he is a black boy. And there's always a point where when they are little and you're so cute, he's so adorable, he's so this. And then I don't know what day it happens. I don't know the exact age. I don't. Then there's like a, you cross over and somehow you are switched from just being perceived as this this adorable little boy, which he was, to... Oh, should I move to that side of the street? Should I? And I'm just like, he just wants to play Madden. He's not going to bother you. <laughs> like, right. He's just a normal kid. Right. And, you know, it's it's having to prepare your your children for what they might experience. And on, you know, on various levels. It's a lot. My daughter, she'll be going to college soon. She's in a, got into a program where she'll be at a university this summer. And uh, she's very much a rule follower and they'll be staying in the dorms. And she's like, what if people drink? And I'm like, well, some kids probably will. And she's like, what if cops come? You don't need to tattle on anybody or whatever. And she's like, but I'm black. And I was not prepared for that. And it's so disheartening. Like this program she got into, we're so excited that like, that's a thing in her head, but I'm black mom. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something you have to think about. It's something you have to talk about in addition to just being a parent, period. Yeah. And isn't it interesting the way that, I mean, I experienced this, maybe you can agree or disagree, but it sounds like you probably have had similar experiences where these 
challenges of parenthood that come up sometimes have so much to do with language. Mm-hmm. Like, what do I say? Like, my son has disabilities, mm-hmm. and how do I talk to my daughter about it so that mm-hmm. she understands it on her terms? How am I going to discuss it with him, especially as he gets older right. and starts to maybe become more self-conscious? Like, what kind of attitude should I have about it? What mm-hmm. phrases should I use? What phrases should I not use? Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. do you, you obsess about this stuff? It's like, damn, this is a big responsibility because the way that you frame it is going to color the way that they frame it for a good while. Exactly. It's funny. <laughs> I tell people like nobody can really prepare you. I know this isn't a parenthood podcast, but no one can really prepare you for parenthood because I feel like people told me like you wouldn't sleep at first and you'll worry and whatever. But I feel like nobody said you are responsible for the whole psychological development (laughs) of a human being based on like even just things and wonderful, wonderful parents. Things like one day you, I'm just in a bad mood and maybe I gave a child a side eye or something. And at 35, that side eye that I gave them at age four (laughs) or whatever it is, like that created a story for them. And so, yes, picking apart language, it's like, hey, daughter, I want you to go to college and have a good time and da, da, da. But also the world's really scary. And also, but have a good time. There's strength in numbers. But also this, don't be out past this time because X, Y, Z could happen. And so like you want them to be aware without, like you said, coloring their whole worldview negatively. And I mean, I have no right answers. I know sometimes I say things well, and then sometimes I'm like, well, that was a mess. So we'll just start saving for therapy, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I can relate to that. And I think any parent, any any parent, if they're being honest, can relate to that. Like, you're not going to bat a thousand. Yeah. You You do the best you can. And my, like, theory of the case from the beginning has just been, like, it's not as much about what I say. It's about more about what I do. Yeah like how I am, like no, no amount of pontificating, no speech I'm going to give is going to be nearly as impactful as just like the everyday example, like basic example that I set. So maybe to, maybe to a fault, I sometimes, maybe I should say more sometimes, but I'm just like, (laughs) you know what? I don't know. I'm just going to try to be calm and nice. (laughs) Yeah. And I think too, one thing I have learned is sometimes the answer really is just, I don't know. And I will tell, sure. and I will tell them, you know what? I really don't know. Let's, we yeah. can talk about it. We can read some things together. Like I'm, I'm always open to doing that with them, but I decided a while ago, if I really don't know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I do just because I'm whatever age I am. I'll say, I don't know. And we can figure it out. And I think that's a place where the main character finally comes to Like she just starts in this place of, like I was saying, here's this other mistake that I've, quote unquote, I've made that I'm not able to carry to term. And then also a bit of relief because if I did, there's this outside world 
And also if I did, I'm going to F this child up because I'm a mess. It's, it almost sounds like, you know, you need to go through like a decade of therapy or something before you decide to have children. Like that's not the answer either, but maybe, I don't know. But um, she was just, hurt. <laughs> she was just very real about what she considered her shortcomings. And that's the thing, or just very real about herself in general. Did it skew negative a lot? Yes. And with the main characters in therapy, with her therapist, she was able to get to a place to at least begin to be open to a glimmer of hope. I think that's what I love so much about her too, is that even though she feels like such a screw up and a mess and the world is awful, there's still this little piece that is like, but I love this man. I love my husband. And I want to, when she, um, parts where she is still pregnant, she talks about creating this person who is both him and her. And that little piece brings her joy. And I think that's a lot of that is what carries her through it. I'm happy for her that she allowed herself to have that piece, even if it was dampened a lot, quite a bit, that she was still able to cling to that little piece of hope for her. Well, let's talk about hope yeah. because it's a huge issue for any parent, prospective parent. Like we talked about, about it a bit earlier, you know, this decision you have to make, like, is it responsible to bring kids into a world this fucked up? Like, yeah. what, what am I doing here? And yet so many of us do it and we make that leap. And is it irrational? <laughs> like, does it take, does it take like irrationality at this stage of human evolution and, you know, the ecology of the planet? Does it take, do you have to just be irrational? Like just basically block out reality in order to do it? Are we, are we at that point? And, you know, I guess like at a certain point for me, I become a little bit indignant and it's just like, I don't know. I can't accept, I guess I just, I think I just can't accept that it's, what are we just supposed to stop reproducing and <laughs> having families? Like, I don't know. It seems like such a bleak it is. way of looking at things. And yet I wonder, like, maybe that's the realist approach at this point, you know? It, you asked if it was irrational. I think, yes. I think at any time <laughs> deciding to embark on parenthood, there's a little bit of uh, irrationality happening. And, um, at the same time, family can, and I should probably speak for myself, family can bring so much joy. Even just, even if outside is this nightmare or nightmares, plural, piled on top of each other, inside there can still be a lot of joy 
I usually pick my daughter up from school. She's in 10th grade. And one day, Mr. Brightside by the Killers came on and she started singing it. She feels like she was born at the wrong time. She likes early 2000s music from before she was born. And she started singing it. And I used to love that song. And so I just turned it up. And we were both just like singing at the top of our lungs in the car to Mr. Brightside. And I remember telling my husband that evening, that made me really happy. How long is the song? Three and a half minutes. And um, those three and a half minutes were really, really joyful. And those are the pieces we hang on to. My... um, son plays football he his team made it to the pop warner super bowl did you know that was even a thing i did I not mean, I, <laughs> I, I i think i can imagine in pop warner that there would be there's got to you got to call the championship game something right like, i did not know that was a thing until last year where pop warner teams nationwide all went to orlando and competed and um they got into universal studios Nobody else was there. They closed down the park just for the football teams. And there was also like a cheerleading competition too. So it was Universal Studios full of pubescent, prepubescent <laughs> boys and girls just, and everything was free in the park. And they stayed at, you know, stayed in a hotel or or what's it called? A resort with their teammates and my husband was a coach, so two of them went, and my daughter and I stayed home. And then I decided we would fly down and surprise them and go to their uh, one of their games. And just seeing him, like, just so happy, and he's a he's very he's very shy, but seeing him being chatty and just just so happy to be with his teammates. That brought me joy. And it this and I said, this is why. And part of the reason, like we could have streamed the games, but part of the reason I decided at the last minute, I asked my daughter, I was like, Do you have any tests coming up this week? No, cool. We're going to Orlando. <laughs> and we went down. I said, because I want this. This is a big thing for him. And I want us to experience this as a family. And those moments, the little ones singing in the car and then those bigger ones, I think that's why we keep doing it. And my main character, there's a part where I think Asher, am I allowed to just spoil like the ending? Do we do that <laughs> here? I mean, I, I leave it to the author's discretion. So okay. you're welcome to, but you know, maybe I, we, listeners should know that this is, there's a spoiler alert. There's a spoiler happening. alert coming. There's a part at the end where Asher is lying on the floor, telling with their baby on his chest and his hand on her back. And he's just telling her stories. And while yes, the world is terrible outside she was so happy in that moment and she's allowed to have that and isn't even that a form of fighting back to allow yourself to experience joy in this way when I know all you want 
for me is, is misery in this nightmare that you all are creating. And so, um, is it irrational? Yes. And we still do it because we get to have, we get to have those moments and yeah. There's nothing better than when your kid is like proud of himself or proud of herself. And you see that like the pop Warner thing. I didn't realize, I thought you meant like pop Warner, like local Super Bowl. I didn't mean like the, I didn't know you meant the national. Yes. It's local teams from all like, uh, the championship, the championship teams locally, all of them from the United States went to Orlando to compete for the national Pop Warner championship. So, yeah. Did, did your son's team win it or no? No. Uh, they oh. got, they won their first game. They knocked, got knocked out in the second game. That was on a, like a Thursday. And then the final game was a Saturday. So like they got, they got pretty far. And just the but experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember that, like playing soccer as a kid and traveling for tournaments and staying, like you're staying at like an embassy suites and you think it's the greatest thing that ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> this, the resort was actually really, really nice. Yeah, um, and they played, their second game was played on an actual football field, like a stadium football field. And so like seeing them on a pop Warner field, it seems normal. And then you see them on stadium field and my sons are running back and like they're running and we were just laughing. Like they're not used to having to run this long. The field is not this long when they play usually, but like they got to march into the stadium with their flags. Like it was just, it was very cute and exciting for them. So, so that's great. But yeah, I didn't know that was a thing until December and I was like, okay, I guess we're doing this. Yeah. Well, I want to talk to you about the actual writing of this book because the narrative mm-hmm. is is braided and it has a collage feel to it. And I'm always I'm always interested in how writers execute on the page, but I think because I am working on a book that's in a similar mode, even though it's yeah. nonfiction, I know the challenges presented by braided narrative. And I know too, as a reader, the way that such narratives, particularly when they're done well, mm-hmm. can kind of trick you trick you into thinking that maybe it's easy or easier than <laughs> you know it might actually be. Yeah. But you know, just I want to try to present to listeners some of the threads that you're weaving here. There is obviously the relationship between the narrator and Asher. There is the photography school that she runs out of the food truck. Mm-hmm. And the relationship that she has with one of her students in particular, Noah, who is shot by police. There is the miscarriage thread and there is the family loss trauma thread, you know, the narrator's family history, the loss of her parents and her younger sister in a car accident. There's the relationship that she has with her surviving sister, Viola, who we, I don't mm-hmm. think we have brought up yet. No. Or maybe maybe we did a little bit in the context of the abortion that the narrator yes, had years yes. ago. Yeah. There's the friend narrative. We haven't brought up the friends yet. There's Jameson and Kendra. Is that the names? No. And because I'm a little nervous, I'm blanking on my own characters. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I have the book right here. I mean, I can. I can oh, my but goodness. Geez, there's Jameson and then Viola. 
Let's see if I can find it. Now we have to find it for the benefit. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> no, it's a, honestly, this is the most relatable thing ever because I would, is it Erica? No. Erica, yes. Oh my okay. goodness. Yes, Jameson and Erica. <laughs> Jameson and Erica are their friends, are, are friends of the narrators and friends yes. of Asher, kind of couple friends. But Jameson is also a former lover of the narrator. Yes. They went to college together and they were kind of a, couple or they hooked up when she was in her uh post-traumatic reckless drinking stage basically and was kind of sleeping with a lot of people and behaving recklessly uh in a lot of different ways and so that's a thread yeah then there's the documentary that the narrator Mm -hmm. is working on she's working on a documentary film about motherhood as a way of kind of processing a lot of the feelings that we've been talking about and yeah. processing uh, loss of pregnancy and you know all this kind of stuff. I could be missing a thread. I think you covered everything. Okay, but there there are a lot yeah. of threads to weave and to keep yeah. this thing feeling unified and to keep the narrative feeling uh, propulsive and to make sure that you're bringing the reader along and that you're not losing them. Right. So. I just would love to hear about the creative process that you went through to get to that point. Sure. This book was not fragmentary when it started. It was, and it was far more linear. It was about, I think the final word count is somewhere around 33,000 words right now. It was originally about, it was twice that. And it was 33, 33 is short. Yeah. Yeah. It's short. And it was about 60, What's twice that? About 66,000 words, 65,000 words originally. It started out with both both, uh, Asher and the main character being a narrator. And um, so it would alternate first person point of view. And the main character also had a name early on. And um, when I went through... I know I sent it to an editor and she had some very good feedback and I put it away for like a year, a year and a half even. And I went back to it and I've always wanted to write something more fragmented. I felt like I was doing a lot of explaining, which I feel like you could kind of get away with in an early draft because, you know, what's the saying? First drafts, are you just telling yourself the story? So just kind of Figuring out, okay, what exactly is is going on? Like Noah wasn't even a person in the first few drafts. And and then I'll jump ahead. When I went to grad school, my first semester, oh, I had sent it to an agent. She's my agent now. And she said, you know, something, I love it, but there's just something, I think it's with the husband. And she said, have you considered cutting the husband as a narrator? And I remember being like, no, ma'am, like to myself, (laughs) absolutely not. I'm not doing that. This is supposed to show how, you know, um, men experience miscarriage as well and can't do it. Nope, absolutely not. And then I said, you know, how long, uh, and she, and she said, or make it more compelling. And I said, how long uh, do I have to make these changes? She said, take however long you want, however long you need. I went to grad school that had less to do with my book, more to do with being 
diagnosed with MS. Yes, with MS and realizing I was totally on the wrong path I was not supposed to be on, but that's a whole other podcast episode. Um, And I remember the first semester, I was reading through feedback and I don't even, the feedback wasn't even about what I'm about to say, but I was just reading through feedback and then also just reading through my pages. And I went, oh, jeez, I need to cut him as a narrator. She's right. (laughs) And... Like you give yourself like a couple like weeks grieving period. And I remember this next semester was starting and we always have to turn in a certain number of pages. And um, we, what I did was two days before, three days before I said, the fragmentary thing was not leaving me. I said, what would this look like fragmentary? And I just started chopping it up. I said, I just need to get 15 pages to turn in. What, what would 15 pages look like fragmentary? And I turned that in and I remember I presented the original way and then like the original first 15 or so pages and then the fragmentary 15 or so pages. And my professor that semester, we were in group and my group had read both. And my professor said, obviously, you are you are the author. You make your decisions. You can do what you want. Do the fragmentary. And a student said of the fragmentary, if I was in a bookstore and I read this, I would have walked out of the store having bought the book. And so from there, I printed the whole book. I thought I could be one of those people who like prints the whole book out and has stuff on the floor and cuts stuff up. Right. I, I have that I'm, dream too. I found out I'm not that person at all. <laughs> um, and I did go through and just kind of like crossed out like very, does this need to be here? Yes or no? I don't think so. This is gone. Does this need to be here? Yes or no? I don't think so. This is gone. And really what I finally understood was I was trying to force it to be about the couple. And it really wasn't about the couple. The story was about her. And once I allowed the story to be what it wanted, like actually wanted to be and stop trying to force it into this hole that I've decided like, no, this is the tunnel we're going to go down. I'm not going to say writing is easy, but it becomes easier to see where you're going. Or at least it did for me. And then looking back to, I don't think I shared this with my agent, but I shared it with another writer friend. I enjoyed when I was doing it, you know, uh, first person POV for the husband and the wife. When I was writing the husband, I was always thinking about getting back to writing the wife. And I really enjoyed writing her. And so my challenge was, how do we make this a story about her and still have Asher... Because this is a thing you experience as a couple. Yes, the woman feels most of it. But that baby was part of him too. And so I didn't, I I wanted to make sure that he was part of the loss as well. And I thought the only way I could do that was through first person uh, point of view from his point of view. And um, 
once I realized the story was about her and I could still, I could still weave in how he handled loss through her and have it work and not just work, but work way better than it did when I had it the other way. Yeah, it was a lot. The process was a lot of one, just understanding the story myself. And then two, it's just not forcing it to be something that I had. You know, you have this idea and you're like, okay, that's what it has to be. And allowing the story to be like, girl, I know way more than you do. So can you just like, move <laughs> out of the way so yeah. I can be what I'm supposed to be? Well, were there things that your professor or students in workshop specifically were telling you about the fragment? Terry version as it differed from the original. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I know they said yeah. this is the one, but like, did they tell you why? I'm sure they did. I don't remember exactly outside of it just moved the way it moved. That's why I'm so glad to hear you said it because that's what I was thinking. Yeah. I, I feel like, and you said this earlier, early iterations of a of a manuscript are often the author telling the story to themselves and getting their bearings like knowing right. who these people are what's the landscape what is what are they up against what happens in the story but that kind of telling and i think that this squares with the fact that you cut the book in half on a mm -hmm. word count level that kind of telling might be too slow yeah for for the average reader for the person coming to right. the book you know uh, in the bookstore and when you start to make things fragmentary, like not obviously not every book needs this, sure. but for the ones that do, it does create more velocity and a more mm -hmm. interesting reading experience. It yeah. obviously, you know, it also presents new challenges to you as the writer. You know, I, I think of timeline. If you're moving around in time, mm -hmm. you have to make sure you keep the reader oriented and making sure that with each transition, each section break or whatever it is, the reader quickly knows where they are and who they're with, you know, all right. these different things, all these different things that happen when you're moving at high speeds. <laughs> right. Yeah. On the page. Yeah. It started to feel, and I loved this for the main character. It stopped feeling like a telling and it started feeling like a love song, like a love letter even. And the I wanted, my editor said when he read it, like he even just envisioned the whole thing with like this blue kind of haze around it. And I wanted that to come through. I wanted the urgency of this woman's <sighs> anger and grief to come through and making it move as quickly as it did. I mean, that just, and making sure like, <laughs> because one, it is short and two, it's fragmentary, every single word had to do the work. And so like editing once we, it was for sure fragmentary was really down on like the story was solid. It's down on a sentence level now because there is a, 
some people get this when I say it. Some people are like, what? But um, I hear a sentence usually. The I hear the melody, the rhythm of a sentence sometimes before I even know what the words are. And so a lot of times when I'm writing, I'll go back like through the paragraph or something and be like, no, there's an extra syllable here. Almost like I'm writing poetry, but that's, and, um, and the funny thing is I think I'm terrible at writing poetry, but that's, <laughs> but it needed to be something that was felt not just, you know, uh, bringing physicality into it of, you know, different things she might've done like the sex, let's say that she had, I described some of that there, but also what the rhythm of the book felt like and knowing truly when to slow it down. Like when we get into uh, the funeral and then after I slowed it down quite a bit there because I needed the reader to live there a bit longer. This wasn't something we were going to speed through. Right. And this is the funeral for her parents and her sister. Oh, no, not that one. This is a funeral for um, one of the miscarriages. Oh, right. Oh, right, yeah. right, right. Like yeah. the, the burial. Yes. Yes, the burial. Sorry. And there's a part afterwards. It's one of my favorite parts. It made it from the original where she she sees the baby in her dreams and she says sometimes she's a little girl and we're going to Asher's store and they get a croissant and almond croissant and whatever. And then she says, and sometimes she's a monster and calling this fetus a monster. And, and I needed that to slow down. I needed not even so much the reader. I needed the main character to sit there and really be honest about not just how she felt, but how she experienced this whole thing. She felt like the baby looked like a monster because you could see clear through their body. And I think she even says um, something about her veins or something being like the roadmap to death. Like she needed to sit there and allow herself to be that honest. And I needed the reader to experience that with her. So it needed to slow down. Hmm. Um, yeah. That, that's where the emotional power comes from. I mean, you can't, I don't, I don't think the reader can fully feel the grief and the loss with the character unless you take them there. Yeah. Yeah. People sometimes ask me who, one of my friends who I was in school with, who's a journalist and a professor, she did, um, she blurbed the book and often asked me, she's like, how do you just go to these ugly, ugly places and um, within a person? And I just feel like we have to. We, there's a James Baldwin quote. Actually, it's a, what's it called? It's in the front of the book about vomiting the anguish up. And as an artist, like that's what we're here to do is to vomit the anguish up. Wait, is it an epigraph? 
Yeah, uh, I'm not sure. Do you have the advanced copy or? Yeah, yeah, I have the advanced copy because I don't uh, rem recall that unless it's somewhere in there. No, it's in. I have a final copy in a box here. It is all art is a kind of confession, more or less oblique. All artists, if they are to survive, are forced at last to tell the whole story, to vomit the anguish up. That sounds that sounds about right. I can relate to that. Yeah. And um, that's what I needed to do. I, I <laughs> sometimes I say, you know, you know, method actors, I'm like a method author. Like I allow myself to really. I am not the main character, but. To access some of the ugliness within me so that I can meet her ugliness and her circumstance. And a lot of times it's, what are the things you don't want anyone to know? And then what is that like for your main character? That's what you write. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very good bit of instruction. And it's one of the higher functions, I think, of literature is that you get to go into those places and talk about mm -hmm. what people don't normally talk about. And that's why it's so liberating to read it and so mm -hmm. powerful to read it. And I often feel if I do not say when I'm talking to writers or reading their work, especially work that I feel like does not go into these places enough mm -hmm. or you can sometimes feel when you're reading something that the writer sort of got up close to the edge of it, right? but didn't, didn't really go in there. Yeah. And the feeling is almost always like you should really have gone in there or in, in the yeah. future, you really need to press more <laughs> yeah. and like you need, you need to write into your pain more or write into the character's pain more or go yeah. to the places that scare you. Like that is, I don't know. I, I don't want to sound too precious about it. And I know there are different ways to, to do this. There are some writers I think that are truly like just writing to entertain. Right. Yeah. But I mean, when it comes to literary fiction and non and work that is aspiring to cut deeply, that's what you got to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like going back to that one scene where in the bathroom where she kicks the sack, I shocked myself with that. I don't know where that came from. And even I, like I wrote it and I was like, oh my gosh. And <laughs> I could very easily have been like, you know what? That's a bit much. Let's maybe have her do something that could be considered maybe a little less violent <laughs> because she just had this horrible thing happen and that it, this is a precious thing. But that would have been a disservice to the main character, a disservice to me, and a disservice to the reader. And I say a disservice to me because I only want to continue to get better. And for me anyway, part of getting better is when something jumps out and shocks you and scares the mess out of you. And how could you even conceive of something like that in your brain? It's my job to make sure that that's what ends up on the page. Whether it makes it to the final you know, draft or not, that's not the point. The point is that I allowed myself to go there. And that's how I just continue to keep pushing myself.
And then also too, it was true for her. It was true for that character. So it had to happen. Well, it's a powerful book and uh, a wonderful read. And ultimately it is, like you were saying earlier, I think when it finally started to click into place and become what it ultimately is, it felt more like a love song. Mm -hmm. Like for all of the heartache in this book, all of the trauma in this book, it is a kind of hopeful, beautiful story. And it's because this character and her husband are pressing against so much darkness (laughs) in search of the light, you know? And I, I think any parent, any human really, but I mean, in particular parents who are bringing kids into the world and wanting to create like love and joy in their lives and to live inside of their hopes instead of inside of their fears. Yeah. It's a relatable story. That is really the story. It's about a person working, working her way towards that. And so I just really enjoyed it, related to it on so many personal, you know, personal levels and human levels. And I always ask writers if they have another book in the works. It's okay if you don't, but I'm wondering if there's anything in the pipeline. I do. And it's funny what I was saying about like not trying to force something. I've had an idea for about two years now and I just, I'm, it's, I know it's told in three parts and yesterday I was on my bike and it came to, it was like, this is not a book about a psychopath because the main character is a psychopath. It's not a book about that. It's not even a book about obsession and what we'll do, the lengths that we would go to for love and the memory of somebody that we loved. It's actually a book about the masks that all of us wear. And um, before I even got to that, a few weeks ago, I was talking with my agent about it and she was like, this is a pretty ambitious book that you're writing. And I was like, I know, (laughs) why can't I just do something simple? (laughs) But at the same time, I told somebody, I said, I loathe that for me, but also I love that for me, that it is rather ambitious. But um yeah, it's it, there is the main character is a ranks high on the psychopathy scale, and also it's more it's about more way more than that. It's not that everyone's a psychopath, but how we all just wear certain masks to cope and just to make it as ugly or not as ugly as it may be or not. It's just what we do as humans. So um, that's kind of what I'm working on. It's in the very, very, very beginning stages. So, yeah. Well, I wish you luck on it. I I guess we don't know. We don't know yet if it's going to be fragmentary. Maybe it will be. I don't think Uh, so. But yesterday I told someone when that new kind of idea of how people are masquerading or going through life with this mask, I said, it's like a, I'm feeling like it's more of a hybrid. It's still told in three parts, but more of a hybrid between like Northwest, Zadie Smith's Northwest and Jennifer Egan's visit from the Guten Squad. So I don't think it's fragmentary, but I think structure will vary throughout. So I don't know. I don't think there'll be PowerPoints. I remember getting to that part and and a visit from the Goon Squad and being like, you can do this? Yeah, right. (laughs) As it turns out. 
Yeah. Well, I wish you, I wish you all the best with it, and congratulations on Blue thank Hour. Thank you. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you very much for having me. All right, everybody, there we have it. That was my conversation with Tiffany Clark Harrison. Her debut novel, Blue Hour, is available now from Soft Skull Press. You can find Tiffany on the internet. Her website is tiffanyclarkharrison.com. She is also on Instagram. Again, the book is called Blue Hour. Go get your copy right away. The Other People podcast is offered freely. If you had a good time, please consider supporting the show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to get another people t-shirt, just go to otherppl.com, scroll down, look for the t-shirt, you'll find it. If you would like to receive my free once-a-week email newsletter, you can sign up for that at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast. Wherever you listen to this podcast, it helps new listeners find the podcast. You can watch this podcast on the Other People YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL. And when you get there, hit the subscribe button. It's free. The Other People podcast is on social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at Other PPL. And if you would like to email me, the email address for this show is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Finally, my novel, my latest novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, is out there now in trade, paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything if you're interested in reading it. Next up on The Other People Show, my guest will be Tara Conklin, author of the novel Community Board. Had a great time with her. That'll be happening on Sunday, so stay tuned.